All right, so we are in the uh, third and final section of this series called The Gathering Storm. Uh, in this section, we're actually transitioning from last year's books to this year's books, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind and the iGen book. Uh, I personally will be glad to be back in a biblical text uh, exegetically instead of... Uh, thematically the way we're doing it, but I think this has been an important talk that we've been having about what's going on in our culture and the generation that we are raising in the midst of that. Last last week, it felt like last year, last week I um, talked about the generation gaps that are elongating. They're getting greater between generations, not in terms of time, but in terms of shared experience. At the same time, the generations are becoming much more um, uh, individualized so that even within the generation, they don't share as much of the experience as former generations did. So we're getting uh, a, a gap in the generations, and then generations are taking place in shorter amounts of time. So that even within a um, family, the oldest kid and the youngest kid may be uh, significantly in a different generational context. The reason for that is that our technology and our culture is changing so rapidly and we are dropping old things off so that the shared experience between the generations is no longer happening. That radical individualism is also creating for this younger generation a vulnerability to the soft totalitarianism uh, that we've been talking about. A big difference between the millennial generation and this Generation Z or iGen in, is a insecurity. The millennials were raised with great senses of self-esteem uh, without merit so that they just bought it. They could, they, they were, why not? Hire me, I'm the best person that you've seen today, right? This, this generation that's now entering college, much more insecure. And they're insecure because they have a desperate need, not for recognition, but for security and safety. And that's what the books are talking about. Now, the coddling of the American mind talks about three things. One is fragility this focus on safety above all else in the raising of children and in the demands of that generation. I'm going to talk about that today. Then we're going to look at emotional reasoning, this notion of how you feel is what reality is, and you should feel through things rather than think through things, a real loss of critical thinking. As I teach classes on critical thinking, I have students who come to me and say, don't know even how to do this because I know how I feel about it, but I don't know what I think about it. I mean, they specifically use that wording. So we'll talk about that next time. And then there's this false dichotomy of there are good people and evil people, which is confused by uh, the fact that then one bad thing and a person is canceled. One good thing and they're praised as if they're a hero. When the reality is we are a mixed bag of good and bad and we struggle with that, which is the biblical approach. So we're going to look at that the third uh, week. 
So today I want to talk about uh, the claim of fragility in the younger generation and a biblical approach to that. Um, So we have to start with what is fragility. Fragility is to be in a delicate or damageable condition. You know, like China, not the country, the, the plates. Uh, you know, there are, there are plates that are made out of stuff where you can throw them on the ground and use them like Frisbees, wash them off and eat from them, right? But China, you can't do that. Uh, I learned that as a kid when my sister and I made mud food and used my mom's good china for the plates out in the uh, backyard. Um, I understand the concept of holiness. Those were holy plates, and we defiled them, right? So uh, the wrath of my mom was not the wrath of God, but I I got the parallel, right? So fragility is this uh, easily damaged, easily harmed, easily broken. Something that is not fragile can endure all kinds of impact, all kinds of stress uh, that would break the fragile item. So in the coddling book, they make the case that human beings are what they call anti-fragile. They got this from another scholar who writes about this. What is anti-fragility? It's that there are certain types of beings, like us, that are biologically and psychologically capable of developing a tolerance for increased levels of stress and exposure to biological risk like peanut allergies and other things which they use and and psychological risk and threat. And so their argument is that children at this point are being overprotected both in the biological sense and in the psychological sense and that's why we're beginning to see greater levels of intolerance towards allergies and greater intolerance towards psychological threats or risks that are going on. Now this is getting worse because uh, as more and more protection is done, we are expanding the definitions of mental illness and emotional well-being because so-called experts are telling us that this is a new problem that we have. Um, And then as soon as that happens, our culture sets up policies and laws that are enacted in order to prevent any chance of a young person being harmed. So the premise of the book uh, is that coddling is in fact overprotecting them, not making them capable of handling stress and difficulty, but actually leaving them unprepared for the struggles of reality and adult life, both biologically and psychologically. And that's their explanation of a lot of things that are going on in college that I won't spend a lot of time on, but I will at least mention them. Uh, There is now in many college classes a refusal to talk about race or anything that might cause somebody to feel emotional pain. There is a uh, requirement in some universities for the professor to give a warning that they're about to talk about something that might be a problem so that students can leave if they 
think that they might be harmed. There are places, safe places, where people can go because a speaker is speaking on campus about something that might be controversial, and people can go here and listen to music and eat pizza and be, be protected from that. And then my favorite one that has even hit uh, Cal Baptist, and that is puppies during finals week. Puppies are brought on campus and students are allowed to cuddle the puppies to take the stress of taking finals off of them. Uh, and we, we've even done that at Cal Baptist. Um, yeah. <laughs> so free speech is under attack because the idea of sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me is no longer a reality in the culture. We now have the idea that words can do more harm than actual physical violence. I've actually heard people talk about psychological damage being greater than physical damage because physical damage heals naturally. Emotional damage doesn't heal naturally. Again, an idea that's not proven but is just assumed in the psychological and counseling uh, world. So um, we, have, we have a problem because people are feeling more and more unsafe emotionally. So young people are being treated with more and more of a sense that they can be psychologically injured by the beliefs and actions of others, even if they're just mentioned. So if you want to hear more about this, you can talk to Dr. Travis or Dr. Bergen or myself because we are certainly seeing it and it's actually less of a problem at our campus than it is at the state schools where uh, presidents and faculty are being fired because they said something that made other people feel unsafe. Uh, We're beginning to see a shift in the mindset and the attitudes of freshman students who are part of this iGen, born after 95 to about the 2007 or 2010, somewhere in that range. Um, So those of you who are therapists may have also noticed this shift if you're dealing with that age group. So the authors of the book believe that the solution and the change to this is a change in child-rearing and the application of concepts and approaches related to cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, while I find some merit in much of what they have to say, I really don't want to talk about Cogby therapy in this context because I prefer a biblical and theological approach to be taken, particularly with regard to parenting. Counseling is a different issue, and we are over-therapeuticizing, that's not a word, but I'm using it, parenting. Uh, First, we went with parents are scared to death that they're going to damage their kids, so they let other people take care of it. Then they see their kids in a way they don't like it, and then they try to fix it, and they're trying to draw from therapeutic notions and interventions, and I really think we need to go back to a biblical form of parenting. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give you three passages, and then we can have a conversation afterwards uh, as we've been doing. The first one is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 7. Now, I would go beyond verse 7, and you can look at this in a broader context, but I I want to get really to to the issue here. In James chapter 1, 
verse 2, he says, Consider it joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I think joy is a beneficial word. In other words, you should see this as good, and you should be joyful about it, all right? My brethren, when you encounter various trials, that would be risk issues, threat issues, tribulation and problems that come your way. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I see many, many people in counseling and in life context who can't handle life. And they claim to be believers, but they have no faith. Their faith is not a mustard seed faith. Their faith is brand new in the box, still wrapped with the cellophane around it faith that's never been tested, never been applied, never been used. And then when something comes, they're not going to use faith to address it. Okay? So that's a real problem. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, its full, complete result, so that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. And then he goes on to say, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But it must be asked in faith without doubt. If you don't have faith, you're not going to have access to the wisdom of God. If you don't have a faith that's been tested, you're not going to have access to the wisdom of God. If you don't have a faith that is functioning, most people that I run into in these situations have a faith that mocks them. Their faith tells them that they shouldn't be going through trial. Their faith tells them they shouldn't be sick. Their faith tells them that things should work out because after all, they love Jesus. And that's not a biblical faith. A biblical faith is a pathway of sorrows and suffering on our way to the glory that will be revealed in the the return of the Lord, in the kingdom to come, and in the new heaven and new earth. And while we, American believers, have lived fat and sassy for a long time, that's not been the norm of the faith around the world and for centuries in the past. So the Apostle here tells us that challenges and trials are a critical part of spiritual maturity. And I dare say they are also a part of the biological system, the immune system, that has to be exposed to some things. Uh, That's why in the book they talk about uh, some studies where they exposed infants to slight aspects of peanuts... And the overwhelming response was to build up an immunity to it. Whereas in the test groups where they didn't expose them at all, because everybody's staying away from peanuts, because there are people like me who have peanut allergies, what it ends up doing is creating more people with peanut allergies when when we remove peanuts from the entire environment. The immune system is designed to be exposed to stuff and build up its resistance. By the way, that's the whole idea behind vaccines. Right? So it's not like we don't know this. It's just that we, have, we are living in a time when we're trying to prevent everything uh, because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but we have reached the point where we are 
preventing, 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 and new things are coming in its place. So, challenges and testing produces endurance. That word, uh, hupomone, is an interesting word. It means patient, unwavering steadfastness. In other words, it's a resistance to the challenge. It's an endurance in the midst of the challenge. And it's an ability to stand until the challenge is over. Having done all to stand, stand therefore with the complete honor, uh, armor of God. So that endurance is something you need. The armor won't do you any good if you turn tail and run. Because you can't handle emotionally what's going on. So, there is a need to stand firm in the faith as we have been discussing. And this endurance, according to James, results in our being complete and lacking in nothing, including the wisdom of God. But it requires the testing of our faith. That means that our faith has to be an experienced faith. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God, but if you're not a doer of the word, your faith is not going to be exercised and developed. So that's an important concept, and that's not a Cogby thing, that's a biblical thing. Second one is Second Peter. I'd like you to look at Second Peter. Second Peter, verse chapter 1, verse uh, 5 through 8. We see this process being talked about also by uh, uh, Peter, this idea of development and growing in grace and in knowledge of the Lord, expanding your faith and developing your character as you're conformed to the image of God's Son. And so he says in verse 5, Now for this very reason, apply all diligence in your faith to supply moral excellence. To supply virtue is what he's talking about. Character that is part of the fruit of the spirit that comes from walking with God. And add to that knowledge. And add to that knowledge self-control. And add to your self-control perseverance. This word perseverance is the same word that endurance that James was talking about. Add to this. You need to know the word. You need to do the word. And you need to develop some ability to stand in resistance to the testing. And then to that add godliness, holiness, walking in God's ways. And to that add brotherly kindness. This is Philadelphia. This is brotherly love. That we are supposed to have affection For one another in that context. And then he says add to that kindness. Also love. Agapeo. That self-sacrificing love. Sometimes we will do things for people. Because we care about them. That's good. Jesus says everybody does that. We should have that. We should not be without natural affection. But we should also have that self-sacrificing love. As well in that context. And so he he says, for if these qualities are yours, and they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. And he says, if you don't have this, you're really blind and you don't really realize what the gospel has done for you. So the apostle tells us that the, uh, that the maturing process of the believer requires that we be diligent to provide virtue and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness, which is piety, brotherly affection and agapeo love, so that our spiritual formation and maturing will enable us to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Something that many of our believers can't do because they've been coddled. They've been told all they need to know is Jesus loves them and he has a wonderful plan for their life. And if they believe that, they'll go to heaven and then they can just kind of wait for all the good stuff to come. And it doesn't come that way. Uh, Particularly now, our faith is more and more either ignored or beginning to be ridiculed and maybe soon under attack. I think that this parallels because spiritual formation biblically is supposed to be done in the home by the parents and then reinforced in the congregation. We've talked about this a lot. I'm not going to go back over that again, but you guys know that and you're doing that. I want you to understand that the order is critical of the role of mom and then the role of dad in the development of establishing security and safety, which is the struggle this culture has, and then developing competence, which is what moves you towards adulthood. For that, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 7, Paul is talking about the uh, experience that the Thessalonians had with him and uh, his uh, companions as they were ministering and developing them spiritually. And he parallels that to mother and father roles. And so he says in verse 7, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having such a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And so, Paul uh, likens himself to a nursing mother. This is that early stage of life, when the child is at its most vulnerable. It is fragile. And so, in that fragile I almost said fragile. (laughs) In that fragile context, uh, the child needs to be cared for. The child needs to be protected. There needs to be some isolation. It needs to allow them to develop with the connection to mom, that nursing mother that gives them a sense of belonging and being loved and being safe and secure. And then... As they reach a certain stage, they have to move out of that towards a different context. And that role is seen in the Father. And so he goes on and says, And you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, and how working day and night so as to not be a burden to any of you, 
we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. All those words are connected to the commandments of God. We behave towards you believers. You know we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. So Paul in this passage explains the parenting style that is to be used with believers and also in our homes. Beginning with that nursing mother, that safety provided, that critical sense of belonging and well-being. And then the father begins to exhort and encourage and implore his children to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the kingdom. I think this pattern is found in the way we parent. That for the first six years, five or six years of life, mom is the dominant parent. Not only because of the nursing, but because of that need to be more, uh, not coddled, but cared for in that sense. So that the child feels secure, the child feels loved, they belong to this family, they belong to this home, they are, they are in a safe place. Home and, and family is a safe place. And then around the age of five or six, they begin, we begin to move in a different direction. Not in our culture, but in biblical parenting. Where the father is moving towards more and more responsibility. So that when the child reaches puberty, they are now ready to put away childhood and begin to walk through adulthood. Not not a switch that quickly, but certainly not 15 years, which is what our culture is doing. Moms tend to want you safe and warm and take a jacket, right? And dads are usually do-it-yourself, right? I mean, part of this is built into our nature of being fathers and mothers. If they are abusive or over-extreme, the mother can then hold the child back from developing and the dad can frustrate the kid so that he rebels or he gives up. And God warns us about both of those. So God gives parenting responsibilities to fathers Because mom's tendency toward safety that seems to never leave, even when mom becomes a grandma or even a great-grandma, they're wanting to do for their kids in that way. There's nothing wrong with that unless that becomes dominant in the kid's life and then they just become what we call mommy's boys, right? That kind of thing. So... uh, I think psychological maturation, physical maturation, and spiritual maturation is supposed to be woven together. But our neutral, our gender-neutral culture has moved towards a feminization of almost everything. And in that feminization has come this move in psychology and, and in education and everywhere to try to keep everybody safe. Try to make sure nobody's feelings are ever hurt. Nobody is ever endangered by a word or something that might uh, make them feel bad. Okay? Now, the only area where this is not so much of the case is in the area of sports. 
because that coaching mindset, even among women coaches, is not so much nurturing as it is encouraging them on to greater and greater things. But even that's being damaged, as you know, in women's sports now, is almost going to be gutted by the transgender struggle. And they won't deal with that. They just, every, because nobody wants to say something that might make somebody feel bad or not included. And that creates a problem of the tyranny of the individual over the group. We've always worried about the group damaging the individual. We've now reversed that. We've gone so far. And you know that. If a mom is overprotective of one kid to, to the rest of the family, nobody can tell mom that that kid is taking advantage of her to the neglect of everybody else. Because you become myopic in that sense. So... The gender-neutral approach in our culture has feminized and infantilized adolescence and young adulthood to the detriment of the last several generations. But I think its impact on the present one has made them insecure and fearful of dangers. Many of them will not drive. Many of them will not drink. Many of them will not do anything that used to be associated with risk-taking. Now you'll say, well, maybe that's good. It's good if there is a reduction of things that are dangerous. But if it's just a reduction of any adult responsibility, which is what it's doing, it's generalizing, it now creates real problems. And we're seeing that. Because they are not discerning how to assess the level of risk. So any risk at all. Is too much. This is why you see people wearing masks when they are in their car alone 30 miles from the next person. They are still wearing a mask. That's crazy. Okay? So the problem is not that there's never a time to wear a mask. I don't want to go to the other extreme. The reality is that we live in a life that has dangers, it has risks. Every day has that. And if you want to completely avoid risk, stay home, never drive, never go anywhere, and let the government take care of you, and now we're open to soft totalitarianism. Or we have to learn what things are risky, okay? A puppy's less of a risk. A puppy can hurt you. I was talking to a guy yesterday who has a puppy, it's not a super big one, but it jumped on him and broke and damaged his rib. Okay? I don't think generally we've got to be afraid of puppies. Snakes, maybe something different, right? So we have to be able to critically analyze what's the real risk here. And we need to allow that to be done. We have to do that in our homes, and we have to do that in our congregations. So, children need to be able to play. They need to be able to play without somebody standing right over them. They need to be able to work out their own rules with their friends. They need to work out their own problems with their friends. But this generation won't do that. If they have a problem with me, what they're going to do is they're going to go to the administration. Just like I know women and husbands who have a problem with each other, they don't go to, to each other. They will come to a therapist to arbitrate. We're teaching people that they can't work through things on their own 
and it's now reaching a crisis in this younger generation. Children need to experience problem solving and risk assessment because that's part of growing up. They need to be aware that there is danger. But they need to be able to evaluate the level of danger. I remember once when I was uh, going to Israel and everybody said, you're going to Israel? It's really dangerous. And I said, I live near L.A. I'm, you know, I grew up in Santa Ana. I know danger when I see it, and I'll be able to avoid that. Not every place in Israel is dangerous, right? Not every place in Santa Ana is dangerous. Not every place in L.A. is dangerous. You've got to learn what the signs are that there may be a risk. And there's some behavior that's more risky than other behavior. But we're not teaching that. So what we need to do is remember that all of life is risk and problems, but they need to be prepared for reality and living that by faith. A faith that gets tested, a faith that gets challenged, a faith that gets stronger and stronger because they are ready. I, I said this many times when Braden got very sick. I had a lot of people concerned about how I was dealing with it. And I said, look, for Linda and I and for Cheryl, this is not a faith crisis. Our faith is strong. We've walked with God through many things. And our faith has been tested. It's not easy to go through. We don't like going through this. I hated watching him die. But it was not a faith crisis. Because I walked through it by faith. And we're not training people to do that. We're coddling them so that they don't have to struggle with their faith. And they're not going to be ready when that faith really gets challenged. So that means you have to go with your children from putting the training wheels on so that they can at least hold up and start riding. And then you have to raise them a little bit so they wobble and raise it a little more until they can balance. My dad made the mistake of just taking one off. That was not good because I went this way, hit it, and went down. So you bring them up, right? They, maintaining balance means balance, right? I don't know what he was thinking, right? But the idea is that the day comes when you take them off and they're riding, right? Will they fall? They may fall, okay? You got to teach them what to do when, when that happens because sometimes those things happen. It's not to avoid that. I can't imagine, because I fell off my bike a few times. One time I was jumping a thing and a friend of mine had loosened my front tire deliberately. So when I did the jump, the wheel went, and then my spoke, my fork hit the ground, and boom, right? Uh, not serious damage, but I checked those nuts every time I did it after that, right? But the idea is you're going to fall. So you've got to be prepared for those things that will happen. And, and it's not the end of the world. But I can't imagine not enjoying all the time I rode my bike everywhere, all over the place, uh, just because of those few times that I fell. I enjoyed my motorcycle. I got hit on my motorcycle once. But it didn't make me go, I'm never going to ride a motorcycle again. I know that they can be dangerous, and you weigh those, those things out. That's true in physiology, that's true in psychology, and that's true spiritually. So, we need to work on that because we need to make this next generation a tougher generation in faith so that they will be able to carry this faith through to the generation 
that follows them. Now one last thing, that means they need to be raised to think critically. So next week I'm going to talk about that second problem of letting your emotions override your mind, which is thinking emotionally. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll do a Q&A. Father, we thank